Good morning. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Downtown Prez. It's good to be with you all this morning, particularly as Michael said, if you're visiting, please introduce yourself to us. We would love to get to know you. Uh, we're really thankful you're here. This week we're going to be continuing in our study on the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in chapter 3 now. So we've gotten through the first chapters, first two chapters, and we're on to chapter 3. This is not going to be a surprise to you all, but I'm a millennial, and um, I know that my generation has been a bit of a, you know, punching bag culturally for most of my life. I recognize this. I think we're moving on to Gen Z. I'm, you know, somewhat thankful for that. Um, you know, we've deserved it a lot, but not all the time. And we've been, we've really brought some good things to this world, I think. And one of the things, maybe one of our greatest contributions is the meme. I don't, like, we didn't create the meme, but I'm pretty sure we perfected it. And um, they, the, a good meme can just be this, like, devastating cultural commentary. And um, one of my favorites, what I, I saw a couple years ago, and um, I don't mean this to be irreverent at all. This was, the, it was just a tweet, and this is what it said. Why is no one talking about the miracle of Jesus having 12 close male friends in his 30s? Right? That's devastating. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the fracturing of American society, and uh, rightly so. I think Brian last week said that we are more divided now than we were at the time of the Civil War in the 1850s and 60s. And I, and I think we all know that just the pitch of public debate has reached um, just new levels for late, uh, lately. Just shrill anger on every side. That is what we're used to. That's the world we live in. And, um, and, and it's everywhere. And we talk about it all the time. One of my seminary professors said made the comment that anger is very often a secondary emotion. That means it's very often a symptom, not the disease, right? It comes out of something else, another negative emotion or something that, that's at the bedrock that comes out in anger. And I wonder if we're so focused on the anger of our division that we're missing out on the primary emotions, the primary diseases of our culture. And I actually think that one of those is loneliness. That's why that tweet is so devastating, is because it's true. And what if all that shrill anger comes out of this great cosmic loneliness and nothing to do about it? 2006, some Duke and University of Arizona researchers found that a quarter of Americans did not have a single person that they could have real conversations with. That Two or uh, half of Americans had two or less people in their lives that they could share their dreams and fears with. Okay? And, and this is one of those sociological studies that, let's be honest, they, they discovered something that we all already knew. A lot of sociological studies are like that, right? They discover something we all already experience. In fact, it, not only do we see it around us, it probably describes us in a lot of ways. And the the really point, pointed thing about these studies is that they were in 2006. The iPhone came out in 2007. That's before all of the technology that was, you know, supposed to teach, you know, give us connection, to connect us to people in new and exciting ways before, and, and just made things worse and worse and worse. That's before all that, these numbers are. 
We've become, as someone, um, an author put it, a nation of strangers. And it's into that cosmic loneliness that this passage speaks a language of community, of home, of purpose, of connection, of full participation. And don't hear what I'm not saying, right? The, the, the book of the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians was written to people who were not us. It was written 2,000 years ago, and they, Paul's not specifically addressing our issues, our cultural issues, right? But what he is is he's writing to a Gentile, a Gentile church, a church of new converts, and a church who was, um, that, that was separated by class and ethnicity, by culture, and yet have become connected to each other through the gospel, but through the common bond of their connection to Christ. Paul sees the gospel as the great unifier, and that is, what can, that is where it begins to speak into our cultural moment. Right, Paul talks about this unity, and we're going to see this in our passage. It comes up um, again and again. He talks about it as a mystery. This new unity is a mystery. And we're going to delve into what that means, um, but he, he used, talks about it as a mystery, and then he describes how that plays out in the church, what that means for the church. So our two points this morning are going to be that, that the, um, the mystery of the gospel and the church of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel and the church of the gospel. One of the things we've been saying during this series on Ephesians is that Paul is writing this letter from prison, and he's very likely dictating it, not writing it himself. And so what you see coming out is a few literary features that probably come about by that dictation. So, for example, in chapter 1, we saw these run-on sentences. It's almost like Paul's just He's just overflowing in his words about um, the majesty of God and what, and what he's done for his people. Well, also in chapter 3, we see something along those lines, where he's going to actually, he's just talked in chapter 2 last week about how the Gentiles are included in the people of God. And then he starts to move on to the next thought, and he starts our passage today with the words, for this reason, dot, 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 right? And then at the end of verse 1, he's like, hang on, guys, I'm not done talking about how the Gentiles are included in the people of God. So, he, end of verse 1, he comes back to the previous train of thought, and then at the end of our passage, verse 14, the next verse, he's going to return to that original train of thought. All that to say, what I'm saying is, there's these literary oral features of this letter, and don't be thrown off by them, but kind of marvel at the way that God uses even Paul's manner of speaking as part of his inspired word. It's kind of a neat thing. So let's go ahead and give our attention to um, our passage. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Here now the reading of God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's good word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we ask that it, would, that it would work on our hearts, that it would change us, that it would teach us who you are and who we are. And who we are in your Son, Lord, change us by your word and your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, first point, the mystery of the gospel. When I was in school, a couple of my roommates and I drove from St. Louis to Chicago just to experience the city. And have you all ever been to a speakeasy? Do you all know what that is? It's kind of this throwback, this leftover from the Prohibition era in the States. And they usually have live jazz music, and um, you, it's kind of often in a little basement, nondescript building. And... Um, you order fancy cocktails and all that kind of stuff. It's really fun. It's like this step back in time. And part of the charm of it is that you have to have a password to get in. And so, you know, we show up at the speakeasy, and we're like, hey. And they said, do you know the password? We said, no. I said, well, sorry, can't get in. They said, but, you, but the password is on our website. So we just looked it up, got the password. They let us in. Great. Well, um, that's the thing about the modern speakeasy is there's, like, the password is a bit of a secret, but it is just blasted all over the internet. It is a very open secret, right? Well, an open secret is something of what Paul means when he talks in this passage about the mystery of the gospel. You know, when we think of the word mystery, we're talking, we often think of Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie or these detective stories, or maybe we when we rarely use it in conversation, we say something like, oh, it's a mystery. It's something that I can't know, can't be known. It's just happenstance. You know, it's, it's a mystery. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not talking about something that's unknown. He's talking about an open secret, something that was hidden, something that is maybe we can't discern on our own. And yet God has revealed in his word, or by, in this passage, his apostles and prophets, by Jesus Christ. So when Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about an open secret, something that's been revealed, something that can be known. What is the open secret? Well, um, Paul tells us in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, Here's the question, though. I mean, you might, Paul's saying the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and you might be thinking, well, listen, I know my Old Testament, and the Gentiles come up a lot. Even when God calls Abraham, he says, I will make you a blessing to the nations. And in fact, that that idea kind of 
comes up again and again and again in the Old Testament. In, um, even in Isaiah, Isaiah 49 says, God says, I will make you, that's Israel, a light for the nations so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles were always a part of the plan. So where's the mystery? Where is the mystery? What is this new thing that's been revealed to the apostles and prophets, as he says in verse 5? What is it? Well, first, it is the manner in which the Gentiles are brought in. If you can think of history as this overarching story, or this drama playing itself out throughout time, right? These little glimpses of the Gentiles being brought in are almost, they're almost like a movie where you start watching it and you, you see a scene and then it says, and five years earlier, and then the movie's walking you to the point in which you understand how you get to that first scene. Well, it's something similar where um, you get these glimpses and then God, in, he, he actually shows how you get to the place where the Gentiles are brought in. And they're brought in through Christ. He says, even in verse 6, he says, they are fellow heirs, members and partakers through the gospel. That's how it happens. Through the gospel. To say, Jesus' death and resurrection and the reconciliation that we have with God because of it, through faith in him, that is the great leveling field between Jews and Gentiles. And and I want to despiritualize this a little bit because I think we can tend to spiritualize Jews and Gentiles a little bit. Um, there were actually two groups of people, people of Jewish descent, descendants of Abraham, and people who were not of Jewish descent, Gentiles. And I think that in the early church there was this sense that, as George Orwell might put it, all people are equal, but some are more equal than others. Right? There's, there's Gentile Christians, and then yeah, there's Jewish Christians, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're better. And I think that you can even get that sense in the Old Testament if you're not careful. And in fact, and Brian's mentioned this last week, in the, in the temple there was actually a wall that kept Gentiles from getting into certain parts of the temple. Like, God-fearing Gentiles did not have access, the same access that Jews had. And I think that's getting to the second part of the mystery that Paul is leaning into, that Gentiles, that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles are equal members of the people of God. He uses these words, and actually in Greek, it's gonna, it sounds even stronger. He's, he says, Gentiles are heirs together, members together, partakers together of the promise in, in Christ. Gentiles and Jews together are part of the community of faith, the people of God, and it's not because they become each other. That's, that is to say, it's not because Gentiles become Jews, or even that Jews become Gentiles. That is not, that is not why they're united. That's not why they're equal. They're, um, their togetherness is a result of them moving together towards a single point, Jesus Christ. And so as they move closer to that point, they actually move closer to each other. They don't become each other. They're united around the single point, Jesus Christ. And we're the same today. We're, we're not together because we're the same. And Lord willing, even here at DPC, we're not 
committed to each other because we're the same. No. We're moving to get, we, we're, we're together, we're united because we're moving together towards a single point, Christ Jesus. And we, as we move closer to that point, closer, um, we move closer to each other no matter the differences. That moving together, that reconciliation, that is at the heart of the gospel itself. In my community group this past week, we were discussing Brian's sermon, and we were talking about the Jew-Gentile distinction, and one of the guys in our group made the comment that he often feels more like a Jew than a Gentile in this sense, and, and this is actually my story as well. I, I, I definitely feel this. Um, he grew up in a Christian home. He was baptized when he was little. He has always read his Bible. He's always known all the Christian lingo and all the Christian traditions. Right? I, I mean, just speaking for myself, I and my family have been a part of the family of God for generations, and praise God for that. I'm so thankful. And I want that for my kids, and I want that for your kids. Like, that is what we want. But, but here's the potential pitfall. If our church or just the Christian community as a whole is full is only full of people who were born into it. We are not experiencing the fullness of reconciliation between peoples that God and Paul would have for us. You know, we live in a world that's desperately lonely. We're surrounded by people that are longing for connection, for closeness. And it's, and, and, and it's potentially concerning that um, in that type of atmosphere, we don't see many adult baptisms. And I'm just speaking broadly. That is the case across the church in America. We're not seeing many adult baptisms. We see lots of infant baptisms. Love them. That is my favorite thing we do in church. I'm all about it. Um, but, but are people coming to know the Lord? Are new, new families being integrated into the family of God? And I, can, I know we can get into just kind of the, the complexities of the skepticism or even just the distraction of our age and the, ways, the, the barriers that that creates, but, but I think what we find in Paul is this incredible passion and calling to preach the gospel. To, he calls it um, the grace of God that he gets to do that. And I think that he would have us catch some of that passion, to, to the passion to see the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in our generation now, to see and experience the oneness of the people of God in a way that maybe we don't expect it, a way that surprises us but captivates us in its beauty. When I was coming on staff, um, Brian walked me through some of the work that the staff and session and others had done years ago when they were confirming and firming up DPC's vision and values. And one of the things, I think they got this from Patrick Lencioni, I'm not positive, but one of the things they did that was new for me was to differentiate between aspirational values and core values. Aspirational values are the things that are really important we really love and we want to be true about us, but we're not exactly seeing it play out in our decisions and in reality. Core values are the things that are wonderful and really good, and we're actually seeing governed decision-making and stuff, things like that. Okay, do you see that? Aspirational is what we want to be true. Core is what is true. 
And I think for me, a lot of my Christian walk is aspirational values. It's full of aspirational. It's full of things that I wish were true and I recognize are important. But when I look at myself really clearly, I say, maybe it's not a core value yet. And I think that's the place where Paul is leaning, calling us to lean in. Do you and I see the mystery of the gospel? That Jews and Gentiles, those born into the family of God, those who are coming for the first time into it, are, are, are we seeing, are, are we, are, is, is that at work in our lives and in our church? Is that animating us? Is it drawing us? Is it giving us? Uh, is it exciting us? Is it part of how we make our decisions? Is it a core value or just an aspirational one? You know, we don't like to assume here that everyone is a Christian. We don't want to do that. If you're not, we're really glad you're here. But this is where I want you to lean in. In the kingdom of God, there are no second-class citizens. And what that means is that if you come to Christ, if you become a follower of Christ, there's no lag time, there's no probation period, there's no halfway house. If you come to Christ, you're in. Period. Full stop. You are in. Immediately. You're a child of God just as much as any of the rest of us are. You're in. You see, the mystery of the gospel is that because of what God has done in Jesus, those who have faith are bound to God. And because we're bound to God, we are bound to each other. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel itself. And that means the church is central to the gospel. Here's my second point, the church of the gospel. I'm sure you all have seen it or heard it, the disillusionment with organized religion. Right? I, I'm a Christian. I just don't really like the church. I don't really think I need it. My experience is that that sentiment often comes from real pain, like real legitimate pain. The church hurts people. It's true. Um, but I think our passage wants us to recognize that there is a real deep importance and centrality of the church to the gospel itself. And hang on, you might be saying, hang on. Are you saying if I don't go to church, I'm not a Christian? Well, no, not exactly. Not technically. You can technically be a Christian and not go to church. But you can also technically be married and never go home. Okay? The gospel without the church is like a marriage without a home. Do you get married for tax purposes? I hope not. The sweetness of marriage is the home that you get. And so the same way, Jesus doesn't just die to give you new life. He dies to give you a new society, a new home, a new community. The church. And Paul's uh, view of the church is so big that it's hard to really wrap our minds around, if we're honest. Uh, look again at our passage, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And this is the part that really just will blow your mind. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? 
angels. And they're watching God act through history. Now, I tend to think of angels as omniscient. They're not. They are not little gods. They are not God. They don't know everything. And what Paul seems to be saying is that they are watching history play out, and they are marveling. Right? I want you to imagine a theater, and, and there's this theater, and there's a play being acted out on it. And the theater is history, and God is the director, and the cast is the church, and the audience is full of angels. And they're watching this play unfold, and as they do, it's like their jaws just drop at the skill and wisdom of the writer and director. I don't know if you think about the church like that, but I I certainly do not. If the church is displaying the wisdom of God, what? But it's so messed up. The church, Paul is saying, is the means by which God is communicating and bringing about his plan of redemption, not just to us. He's communicating it even to the angels, and they are in awe of him, the way he's doing it. One of my favorite quotes of all time, I think about this all the time, it's by Marshall McLuhan. And he coined the phrase, the medium is the message. Have you all heard this? Love that quote. The medium is the message. This is what that means. The, The means by which we communicate something, that is the medium, says something about the thing that we're trying to communicate, that is the message. So this is why I have a stack of letters that Cecilia has written me, and I don't have a stack of the printouts of the texts that she has sent me. Right? Because... Texts are trivial, and letters are weighty, right? Actually, the writing of a love letter actually communicates something about the love itself. Does that make sense? The medium is the message. And we all understand this implicitly. What, What Paul, I think, is saying is that the church is the medium, the church is the means by one of, one of the primary means by which God is communicating to us and to the world. And I think that asks us the question, what is the message that we're communicating? You know, there are times throughout history when the church, through their love for one another, has shouted, God is reconciling all things to himself. And there are other times in which it has been a whisper. And I think what we need to ask is, what are we doing today? What what are we communicating about who God is and what he's doing? Are we communicating his reconciliation of all things? Are we communicating division? Are we shouting? Are we whispering? Our love for one another will be our witness in a watching and lonely world. One of my favorite um, thinkers right now is Sarah Williams. She's a Christian professor at Oxford. And she says, how we live together is what we have to offer the world. How we live together is what we have to offer the world. Our, Our world is longing for connection in the midst of disenfranchisement. It's longing for a home in the midst of isolation. It's longing for love in the midst of so much anger. 
and our ability to sacrificially love each other will be the greatest testimony to the gospel in a world that desperately needs intimacy and love. But it's actually something that we need as well, right? Because we need something that will pull us beyond ourselves. We're all living in these little islands of our own personalities, and this ocean of loneliness is rising around us, threatening to drown us, and we need something else beyond ourselves. And what we do in church is we're practicing eternity. We're practicing eternity. And our whole beings must be engaged to one another because the love of God has bound us to one another now and for eternity. God calls us to love one another. You see, the church is central to the gospel because it's so central to God. And of course, if it is, if those things are true, it must be central to you and I. If you've been married to Christ, the church is your home. The people here, even here, are your people. Love them. Give yourself to them. Like, this is so much of what we do as a church. That's why we have community groups. Is we're, we're trying to learn how to love one another how to be committed to each other, how to be reconciled to one another, how to live in the mess of this life together. Paul is calling us to be the message of God's reconciliation. How do we do it? Where do we get the resources? Um, You know, Paul is willing to take this to an extreme that you or I maybe are not willing to do often. He says in verse 1 that he's a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Uh, verse 13, he says that he is suffering for them. And he actually is. If you read, if you read the book of Acts, he, the reason he's in prison is because he wanted to bring the Gentiles into the family of God. And that's so, he's preaching to them about Christ, and it so infuriates the Gentile leaders that they, they throw him in jail. Like Paul is actually serving time because God has called him to declare the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and they wanted nothing to do with it. So he is actually suffering for them. Where do we find the resources for such self-sacrificial love for one another? Well, I think Paul is able to do it because he understands himself to be doing it from a place of unbelievable wealth. Paul understands himself to have, as he describes, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That means never-ending, infinite, deep love of Christ. Paul has everything he needs, and even more so. He's so rich in Christ, he can give his life away to others because he has been so abundantly blessed. There's nothing at stake for Paul. He knows that he can give his life. He can actually die, actually die. And yet in Christ, he'd be made alive. So what are those unsearchable riches in Christ that Paul has himself and that he preaches to the Gentiles? Well, He's been talking about it throughout all of Ephesians. Um, But I think we can really get at it in verses 11 and 12 in our passage. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In Christ, 
through faith in Him, we have boldness and access to God. This is what that means. Paul knows God, and he loves God. He's been reconciled to God. He's been united to God. He has communion with God, and God knows Paul and loves him and has been reconciled to him and united to him, and he has communion with him. And now we've come full circle because the closer you are to God, the freer you are to be close to one another. If you're in Christ, you have full, confident access to God, complete and total access and intimacy with God himself. And what Paul is saying is, surely if that is true, surely if that is true, we can learn to love, to accept, to be reconciled to others. Who stand, those who stand before the same God, not because of who we are, not because we're the same, not because we, um, you know, think the same way or look the same way or act the same way or come from the same places. No, we're reconciled to each other because of what Christ has done for us. And that's where the resources are found and that's where the means by which God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we know that these things are true. But Lord, in, Lord, in just, the, the, um, the, just the divisions and the cynicism of, in our age, it's so hard to see it play out. Lord, and we know that those things creep into the church, and Lord, we beg that that would not be true of us. Lord, make us people of peace, people of reconciliation and unity. Lord, we have everything we need in you. Surely we can extend mercy and grace to one another. Lord, make us whole. In your name we pray. Amen.